good. All the time. It is wonderful to see you today. I've always said sometimes God loves on us and sometimes God shoves on us. Today we're going to talk about the cost of being a disciple. And some of this is going to be a little uncomfortable. And I pray that it makes us uncomfortable in all of the areas in which God most wants us to be uncomfortable. How's that? Many years ago I had a parishioner make an appointment with me. He came to inform me that I talked about money too often. I responded, I hardly ever talk about money. I certainly don't talk about money as much as Jesus did. I mean, he talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. And from my point of view, if I was going to preach the Bible, I had little choice but to address the topic every now and then. Unsatisfied. He just went on and on and on until he hit my last nerve. We were probably, I don't know, 30 seconds into the conversation. (laughs) I said, here's the deal, Cam. In the years I've been in ministry, I've never had a single person complain about me preaching on money who actually tithed. I got the giving records right here. And I can look things up right now, but I'm guessing the streak's not going to be broken today. He shook my hand, he left, and I had 20 free minutes for coffee. Yes! Not long after that, I had an article published expressing my conviction that pastors need to tithe. (laughs) Right? So this this article goes all across the country, it goes all across Europe. At the time, it was the most published thing I had ever done. This is probably 15 years ago, right? So this thing is going everywhere. You would not believe the hate mail I got for suggesting that pastors needed to tithe. Pastors took time to write me personally, to chastise me for not taking the cost of seminary into consideration, as if I hadn't been to seminary, for failing to take low initial pay into consideration, as if I hadn't had low initial pay. Some argue that Jesus did away with the tithe. I thought, of course you think he did. Others said I was heaping condemnation upon their head. I'm sitting there thinking, I just wrote an article, dude. You need to lighten up. You know, I I, I thought about that. And I thought about never writing again. Because it wasn't just from America I got hate mail. I'm in Europe, parts of the Orient. It was amazing. And I really thought about it. And what, what I really settled into is that discipleship's a pretty challenging venue. And it's not my job to negotiate the terms of discipleship. I'm not a negotiator. My job is to make discipleship clear to people. And if people are uncomfortable with that, sometimes maybe we just need to wear it. And if God pinged me to write that article, then I just needed to stand firm. We're in Jerusalem. Third decade of the first century. Our overriding passage is Acts 2, 42 and 47, which we read today. But today I'm going to be looking at Luke 12, 22 through 34. All right. So Jesus of Nazareth has been crucified 
resurrected and ascended. Pentecost arrived. The only 120 Christians in the world are filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, under the influence of said Holy Spirit, goes out into the streets, preaches, and 3,000 people come to the church that day. Pretty good day. Pretty good day. Church starts with 120, ends the day with 3,120. The Acts 8 are eight characteristics of the early church. This snapshot we get in Acts 2 gives us a look at at an effective, growing, unified, empowered church. I mean, for me, it's the New Testament equivalent of creation before the fall. Before the fall, creation is awesome. And this snapshot we get of the early church is incredible. When our church was just starting to grow about 20 years ago, people would ask me, what kind of church are you wanting to be? And they had all these famous churches in America at the time. And they they thought we were trying to pattern ourselves after one or the other of them. And I said, I want to be a church like the one in Acts 2. That's what I'm shooting for. I want to be a church like that. So this early church is unified around four practices and then eight characteristics. Let's look at the four practices. It comes from verse 42. They, the 3,000, joined the believers, the 120, and devoted themselves to four things. Number one, devotion to teaching. Now, you got to remember, Jews from all over the world, the Mediterranean world, had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. It, It was Good travel weather, a lot of people would have been in town for the Jewish celebration. The Holy Spirit comes down at that celebration. So you have people getting filled with the Holy Spirit who are from all over the Roman world. When the Holy Spirit comes down, a lot of these people extended their stay because God was doing something incredible. Listen to me. If you're ever in a place and God's doing something incredible, I would suggest you extend your stay. And that's what they did. And they gave themselves to these four practices. The first, devotion to teaching. They wanted to hear the word of God as delivered by the apostles. They wanted to get the word into them. A healthy church, a healthy Christian wants to get the word in them. At Christ Church, we have Bible studies. We've got small groups. We've got a thing this afternoon for people that feel called to teach, uh, to teach the word. Uh, how we want to pour into our teachers and help take them to that next level. But we've got a real passion here for getting into the Word of God. We're reading the New Testament through as a church this year. You can stop by the Sync Center and get our uh, program about how we're navigating that. You can easily catch up. You've just missed a month of it. But you can easily catch up. On Wednesday nights, we do something called Going Deeper. This church fills up the parking lot on a Wednesday night because people want to go through the Bible verse by verse. In a spirit-filled church, there is a desire to get the word in you. There's a desire. Number two, fellowship. In a spirit-filled church, people want to hang out with each other. The Jesus in us wants to connect with the Jesus in other people. Fellowship. Number three, sharing in communion. Uniting practices, uniting our hearts on what we share in common. And that's Jesus. And then number four, prayer. Prayer. I don't believe anything great 
happens apart from prayer in a church. We've got this thing called 500 where we're just inviting people to church. We've been doing it since last Easter. But my belief about evangelism is that prayer plants dynamite and then the invitations detonate it. If you're always planting dynamite but you don't have a detonator, nothing's going to happen. If you're always inviting people but there's no prayer, you're just going to make a lot of noise. We don't want both of those things happening. Well, those are characteristics of the early church, our practices. Now let's look at the characteristics. In week one, I looked at wonder. We serve an awesome God. Can I hear an amen? We serve an awesome God. Number two, miracles. Miracles. One of the things we've done for this series is right up front, there are some green stones. Those of you that join us online, you've been sending us letters uh, asking us to send you a green stone. We, we've been shooting them out to you all over the country. We would love to do that. The green stone simply represents an area in your life in which you need a miracle. And it may not just be one. I mean, we're only a month into 2024. You might have already had a three stone kind of year, right? You need three miracles in your life right now. Let each stone represent a miracle that you need in your life. When you see the stones, take them home with you when you see them. Let it remind you to pray that God would do something wonderful in these situations. And when God answers that prayer, during the final song of one of our worship services, we're going to invite you to come up and put that stone in this big jar. And this big jar in Hebrew is what's called an Ebenezer. It's a monument to the glory of God. This is a miracle jar. And so as these stones come in, we're going to fill this up. And every time we see this jar, we are going to give thanks to our miracle working God. I walked in this morning before early church. And the first thing I was encountered with was this miraculous thing that God had done. And I want to tell you, it was a medical thing that no one but God could have done. And we just started the day in celebration. I was just handed this right before this worship service. And the person said, God has already answered my prayer, already done a miracle in my life. So I'm just going to pop that in right there. <laughs> Miracles. Number three, fellowship. Fellowship is both a practice and a characteristic. We need to get together. Today I'm going to talk about generosity. Next week, Reverend Carmen is going to talk about worship, the central component of worship. I've been asked before, do Christians have to go to church? And I tell people, absolutely not. Christians want to go to church. They want to. Number six is communion. Number seven is a good reputation and then Reverend Mike will finish this series out with growth. That's what's coming up. But today, we're going to explore generosity. I believe the Bible teaches Christians to tithe and to give offerings on top of that. But that is not what today's text is talking about. It just isn't. For me, this text is about pings, far more than disciplines. When God asks you to do something very specific, then that's a matter of obedience. This is more about pings. They shared with each other. They sold things. They helped one another. Why? Because these folks have extended their stay. A lot of these new Christians who are spirit-filled, they ran out of resources. They were in town longer than they had money. 
And they were helping one another. There were people in the church that didn't have a lot. They were helping one another. They were responding to pings, far more than disciplines. Those in the early church cared for one another to the point of being sacrificial. People gave to one another as they felt led and as they had the resources to do so. You know, Jesus never negated the Old Testament mandate of a tithe, but he did tell us to be in a good mood about it. Generosity is being in a good mood about giving. It's being in a good mood about the tithes that we give. It's being in a good mood about the offerings that we give. And it's also being in a good mood about responding to the pings that God gives us just to help people whenever it comes up. So we're in Luke 11. Jesus is participating in his favorite pastime, criticizing the Jewish religious leaders. This time, Jesus insults them in the home of a leading Pharisee who had invited him for dinner. By the time the chapter concludes, the most powerful people in the Jewish world were plotting for Jesus' demise. For Luke, the more cross-threaded Jesus became with the establishment, the more popular he became with the people. Jesus is now drawing thousands everywhere he goes. Crowd assembled, Jesus launches into teaching about hypocrites. He says people are either for him or against him. He talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and witnessing under pressure. None of these are feel-good topics. Just then, a person in the crowd asked Jesus for a legal opinion, which was not uncommon that you would ask a rabbi for a legal opinion. He wanted an opinion on an inheritance issue in which he had been written out of his father's will. Asking such a thing of a rabbi, most common thing in the world, the disposition of this man is, Jesus, if you will just make my brother share my father's money with me, I will be happy. And Jesus replies that not only does money not make people happy, but preoccupation with possessions will destroy your soul. It'll destroy your soul. So rather than rule on the man's case, Jesus tells a story. There was a farmer who was doing really well when everyone was doing poorly. Anybody raised on a farm or live on a farm now? But you know something about farming. You guys know that especially in the Midwest, you never know when rain is just going to pop up out of nowhere, right? Sometimes it does. It just pops up. And we live out in between Trenton and Highland, And sometimes in the summer, when it's not raining anywhere else, there'll be a great big cloud. And it might just rain on half a mile square and just kind of push through. And it doesn't rain anywhere else. Well, it looks like that this particular farmer caught the rains well. The people around him didn't get the rain. He did. He ends up with a bumper crop when no one else did. Not only that, it is so bad for other people that they're actually hungry while he has everything in the world. So rather than selling some of the grain for hungry people to eat, he decides to hoard all of the grain, keep it for himself, and drive up the prices. And when his grain bins were full, instead of selling some off to relieve suffering, he tore them down and built bigger silos. So this dude is like a hoarder cubed. Now he thinks he hasn't made. And he's all ready to kick back and live a life of ease. And Jesus said, and he died that very night. Thank you. You all drive safe. (laughs) And he died that very night. I mean, Jesus gives this whole story 
He says, boom, the guy's dead. He gone. At the end of the story, Jesus responded, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. We call this the parable of the rich fool. This text juxtaposes the generous values of the kingdom of God with the selfish values of this world. For Jesus' unbridled obsession with wealth and possessions is poison. And generosity is the antidote. Verse 22 and 23. Jesus said to his disciples, don't worry. For life consists of more than food and clothing. In the parable of the rich fool, Jesus begins by answering an unstated metaphysical question. What is the stuff of life? Why am I here? What is existence all about? The answer of this world is kind of summed up by the rich fool. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's his answer. Jesus' counter is that while the need for food and clothing are certainly boxes we're going to have to check, they don't even begin to answer the big questions of life. In fact, they're hardly worth the worry. The Life Application Commentary states that in its essence, worry comes from not being able to control your circumstances. I am sorry if you heard it here first, but control is an illusion. Oh, you can control some things. But control is an illusion. And until we come to grips with that, all we're going to do is worry. I would ask how many of you are worriers, but you would worry about your response. (laughs) I would ask how many of you have anxiety, but that would, of course, only make you more anxious. But we all deal with that, right? Every single one of us have times that we disproportionately worry. We have times that we have to fight anxiety. It's somehow we've just assumed it's part of the cost of living in a fallen world. And there's really only three logical responses we can have to worry. Number one, we can live in the illusion of control. We can act like we are in control. It's an illusion, but it'll become your favorite illusion, and that will work until it won't. But let me tell you something. When you hit the point when it won't work anymore, it's going to be a hard fall. Number two, we can live in worry about our lack of control. That's a loser's play. Because one of the things that you're going to really find out, if you don't know this, but there are some things that run in families Alcoholism can run in families. Addiction can run in families. Poverty can run in families. Did you know anxiety and worry can run in families as well? It can just run in families. Uh, And a lot of people just spend their whole life worrying about a lack of control. And then they pass it to their kids. And then they pass it to their kids. And it just goes on and on until somebody breaks that. And the third thing is we can just relinquish the illusion of control to God. Dear God, I can control some things, but I can't control everything. You know, we can all eat better and and exercise, right? But it doesn't mean you won't get hit by a bus. Right? I mean, it's just it. There's never going to be a worry-free existence no matter what we do. So 
all we can really do is off-ramp our worry to God. And I'm going to suggest door number three. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because worry is a conviction that God can't do his job unless you have an ulcer. Verse 24, you don't see birds putting grain into barns. And God still cares for them. You are more valuable than they. Jesus reminds us that we are important to God. You are important to God. You just are. God loves you. You're just going to have to get used to it. He loves you. You're, you're of value to him. And Jesus also reminds us of the certainty of God's provision in our lives. And he's really telling us to be more like birds. Don't be like the rich fool. Be like a bird. Birds eat what God provides every day. They have faith that God knows their needs. They, that God will give them what they require. And Jesus said, if God cares for the birds, how much more will he care for you and me? You know, in the prayer Jesus taught us, he, he told us to pray for our daily bread. Not to worry about the bread for the week or the month or the year, but just to pray for enough bread for today. And if that is our prayer, then every time we eat, a prayer has been miraculously answered. If that's a prayer, we'd toss a green stone in every time we had a meal. A mealtime blessing is a public celebration that God has come through yet again. How many of you grew up saying a table grace? Before you'd eat, you say a prayer. Yeah, we used to sing our table grace at home. For health and strength and daily food, we give our thanks, O Lord. We, we used to sing that at home. And then I'd go on mission trips with my dad, and they sang, you'd have, like have 200 guys in a Denny's, right? And, and they, would, they would like say, we give thanks unto thee, O Lord, we give thanks. And I mean, we would just boom out and really freak everybody in the whole restaurant out. Uh, When we were just by ourselves, we would uh, just stop and just have a prayer of thanks. And when we went out, we would stop and have a prayer of thanks. We're in this 500 campaign, and we've been inviting people to church. And maybe you're our guest for the first time here today because somebody invited you. But there are a lot of ways to make a witness. And I just want to suggest one of the most powerful ways that you can make a witness in this world today it's just by having a short, respectful, public grace before you eat in a restaurant. You don't, you don't need to, everyone, we're getting ready to pray here. You don't need to Barney Fife them, right? <laughs> just chill and just pull it in. Everybody bow their heads. Just stop for five seconds, ten seconds, and you will get responses to it people will notice and people will say something it's one way we make a witness I would like to encourage you to reinstate the table grace in your home I'd like to encourage you to make a practice before you eat of just saying thanks to God dear God you've come through yet again and I give you thanks Verses 25 following. It doesn't help a bit whether you worry about things, great or small. Has anybody else noticed it doesn't really help when you worry? 
doesn't help. It doesn't change anything. It just makes you miserable. And then Jesus said, you have such little faith. Uh. Worry's a thief. It'll steal the quality of your life now, and over time, it will rob you of the quantity of your life. Do you know you can worry yourself to death? To dwell on worry is to invite a thief into your life and just tell him to take whatever he wants. You see, God and worry are mutually exclusive realms of existence. The more you have of one, the less you're going to have of the other. You can't really pray and worry. You're doing one or the other. You can't witness and worry. You can't worship and worry. You can't give generously and worry. And Jesus said worry is a lack of faith. And faith is the one thing that we all need to please God. <coughs> worry is a weapon of mass destruction. That's used by the one who comes to steal and, and kill and destroy. I just want to suggest that worry's had a free pass long enough. I think we need to call worry out. I do. I think we need to call out worry. Worry's a sin. If I am obsessing with worry, I am not where God wants me to be. Jesus didn't come to earth so you could worry and be anxious. You could have done that without him. If I'm obsessed with worry, I'm not where God wants me. Verse 30, worry dominates the minds of many people, but your father knows your needs. You know, we're all full of something and we all leak. Can I hear an amen from somebody? We're all full of something and we all leak. People who are filled with a lack of faith are going to leak worry. When I don't have enough faith, I leak worry. Faith believes that God knows your needs. Faith believes that God loves you. And faith believes that God will take care of you. Faith and worry are mutually exclusive realms of existence. The more you worry, the less you're going to believe. And the more you believe, the less you're going to worry. So I wouldn't focus on getting the worry out because I don't know how to do that. But I would focus on pumping lots of faith in. You say, well, where do you get faith? Well, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Get God's stuff in and it'll push the worry out. My office is, uh, I'm back in my office, incidentally, after the flood, but it doesn't, I mean, back in it, meaning it doesn't look normal at all. I'm just back in it. But in my office, I don't have a window. I never have. And so every day I walk in to my office, it's, it's just pitch dark. I don't know how to get rid of darkness. I just don't. I'm not that smart. But I don't have to get rid of the darkness. I just have to turn on the lights. And I've got to tell you, since my whole ceiling caved in and crashed to the ground, I have new lights. They're awesome. They're really cool, man. It just, it, just, it just lights that place up. And you know what? When you light my office up, the darkness has to flee. It has nowhere to hide. I just want to suggest, don't focus on getting rid of the worry. Focus on filling yourself with the light of God and let the light of Christ drive the worry away. Get, get every, take every opportunity to get to church. Take every opportunity to get in a group. Take those opportunities to listen to praise music. Take those opportunities to get in the word. Every time you pump that stuff in, you're just flipping lights on. Keep flipping the lights on and let it drive the worry away. 
Verse 31, God will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. This is an if-then. And we see these all throughout the Bible. If you do this, then. So let's take a look at this. The if and the then. The, the if's always the hinge point. If you make the kingdom your primary concern, then you can rest certain that God will take care of you. We can spin that. But if you do not make the kingdom your primary concern, then none of the aforementioned promises apply to you at all. God's provision is for those who put God first in their lives. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things shall be added unto you. A lot of times we say, God, if you will just add all these things to me, I will put you first. And it doesn't work that way. You put God first and then God provides for us. Verse 32 and 33. So don't be afraid for it makes God happy to provide for you. I just want to stop there. Did you know it makes God happy to provide for you? I've got four green kids. They, they used to be little and adored me. And now they're all brooding junior high students, right? I used to be the great and mighty papa, and now I'm the great and mighty, what's up, bro? <laughs> so I've got to tell you, one thing hasn't changed, though. I love those grandkids with all of my heart. And anything I can do for them gives me joy. I got to spend some time with them over the weekend. It's joy. Went to Wally's and Breeze and got double cheeseburgers. Is that not a wonderfully American thing to do? Where do you go in and sit? You don't. You sit in your car. It's cold. Suck it up, kid. This is awesome. It gives me joy. It gives me joy because they're the apple of my eye. I, I, I tore those four kids. Did you know you're the apple of God's eye? Do you know it gives him joy to provide for you? Do you know when God comes through for you, it brings delight to the heart of God? It's just so overwhelming to me. It makes God happy to provide for you. So give your access to those in need and store up treasure in heaven, for there your treasure is safe. And this is what that Acts 2 passage is actually talking about. It's talking about generosity. It's talking about us being as excited about providing for others as God is excited about providing for us. And what he's saying is that the disciples, we can afford to be generous because we know God will take care of us. We can afford to heed the pings because we know God will take care of us. We can afford to say yes to discipleship because we know God will take care of us. Whatever it is that God's asking of you, you can afford to say yes because God will take care of you. And then verse 34 in the Greek's a little wonky in syntax. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. No matter how you translate this, what it's really saying is the things that are most important to us are the things we're going to think about. 
And if we think about the things of this world, we're always going to worry because they can all be taken from us. But if we think about the things of God, we will not worry because we're storing up treasures in heaven. You know, year before last, uh, stock market and bonds both had a bad year. It just never happens. It happened. A lot of people live off of nest eggs or watch their IRAs. All of a sudden, boy, got a lot, a lot of attention there because it just felt like you're, <laughs> and you have no control over that. And if that's your God, I got to tell you, there's nothing to do but worry. Money and resources are wonderful gifts from God. But if we put them ahead of Christ, they become idols. And what we put ahead of Christ causes worry and anxiety. You see, there's this thing about Jesus. He always wants more out of us than we're willing to give him. You see, people wanted to listen to Jesus, but he wanted them to actually do what he said. People wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted them to actually be disciples. People wanted him to heal them, but he wanted them to change their lives. And that's always been our problem with Jesus too. We want to give him some of us, but not all of us. We want all of his promises, but we don't want to truly seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus is always asking of us what we least want to give him. Always. That's why that guy got mad at me. So all those pastors got mad at me. Because Jesus is asking what they least wanted to give him. And I want to tell you, God will ask of you, Jesus will ask of you, whatever it is you least want to give him. And what he asks of you may not be at all what he asks of you. And what he asks of you may not at all be what he asks of you. But I assure you, whatever it is that you put ahead of Christ, that is what he's going to ask of you. Every time. And you want to know why? Jesus is always asking of us what we least want to give him. Because when he has that, he'll have everything. When he has that, he'll have everything. Whatever it is you love more than you love Jesus, Jesus is going to ask it of you. And when he does, you can get all offended. You can radiate at high frequencies. You can complain, all Jesus does is ever talk about money. Or you can fall on your knees and repent of idolatry and tell Jesus he's going to be the most important thing in your life. And you're going to give him the first place on the throne of your heart. And when you do that, every promise that the Bible makes suddenly comes into play. In the early church, people didn't just fellowship with each other. They were committed to each other. They helped one another when they had need. They were connected in that way. And if we're going to be an Acts 2 kind of church, we're going to have to be committed to each other as well. So I think it's a fair question to say, what is it we do to help people? Well, the first thing you need to understand in the early church, benevolence in the early church was offered to the people who attended 
the early church. It came to the church. The temple took care of alms and some things outside the community, but the early church, what they did was take care of the people in that church. That was their first and foremost priority. Did they help other people? Of course they did. But first and foremost, the early church helped one another. They cared for one another. So let me share with you three things that we do here at Christ Church to help people. And since this was on finances, let me tell you about three things we do to help people financially here. The first thing is, I want to encourage all of you, when God pings you, go with it. Just go with it. If you see somebody that's in need or you hear of a need and God just prompts you and you have the capacity to do it, don't overthink it. Just do it. So just go with the pings. So I believe that God has called Christians to tithe. Uh, Melissa and I started tithing when I was a senior in college, student teaching in southern Illinois. Melissa was babysitting. She made $60 a week. And we tithe six bucks. I guarantee you that the finance committee at my church didn't open that check every week and go, boom, we just hit the budget. Guarantee you that did not happen. But it wasn't about that. It was about us putting Christ first in our lives. And we believe that one day God would give us more to tithe than six bucks a week. Offerings on top of your tithes. Those of you that are supporting the renovation campaign, if you want to do that, that's stuff's at the sink center. But those of you that are supporting that, when God puts something on your heart, those of you that support uh, ministries, ministries to Honduras, those of you that support ministries in, in various areas, fellowship of Christian athletes, those, those are promptings that God puts on top of our ties. We call those offerings. And then there's also just pings. Ways that God just pings us to help somebody. We just hear, and God goes, you do this. And when you do that, don't overthink it. Well, I'm not sure if they deserve it. Well, I'm not sure any of us deserve salvation. And I'm glad God didn't overthink things before he sent Jesus. So if God pings you to help somebody and you're capable of doing that, just do it. So go with the pings. That's one way we help. Number two, we have something here called the Network of Caring. It is a fund in our church. And people who attend our church, if they have a time of temporary financial crises, a lot of times we can help. We can help. It's done anonymously. It's done very quietly. All someone has to do is just get a hold of Reverend Carmen and let them know what that need is. There are limits to how much money we can give. And there's limits to how many times we can help people in a, in a year that just enables us to be able to help lots of people and not just one or two. But a lot of times we can't help. And it's called the Network of Caring Fund. And if you have a need, let us know. I guess what I want you to know is if you have a financial need and you don't know what to do, you ought to be able to ask your church first. You ought to be able to ask your church, and we'll do our best to help. Sometimes we can meet that need. Sometimes we can help people get connected with financial counseling to keep themselves out of a situation where they're going to need that again. But we just care for people here. Network of Caring. And then we have, thirdly, we have what we just kind of call blessing Sundays. There are Sundays that God just kind of pings my heart. And I say, hey, on this particular Sunday, we're going to do something special for people who have need. And we're going to do that today. So today, we have $100 grocery cards. If you're running tight right now, 
And if a $100 grocery card would be helpful to you, maybe, maybe that's your green stone right now. You just don't have enough money for food for you and your family. We can't do everything, but we can, we can do that. So right after the service, go through the doors, take a left, take a right. You'll be in the office area. Go to Reverend Carmen's office. She's not going to ask you a million questions. We just want to help. And we'd be happy to give you a $100 grocery card today. There are things that we can do. And in the early church, they did those things with generous hearts. They gave, but they were in good moods about it. It gave them joy to give. One of the ways we know that the Spirit is in our lives is that we have joy around generosity. It's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. So, we're going to have a closing song. If you need a miracle in your life, maybe you need five, I'm going to invite you to come and grab a stone. Take it home with you. Let it remind you to pray. If God has already done a miracle in your life, and I've heard two today, during the final song each week, we're going to invite you to come up and put your miracle in that jar. And this jar will be a monument, an Ebenezer, to the power of our mighty God. God's moving here. Sometimes Jesus loves on us, and that's awesome. Sometimes Jesus shoves on us, and that's awesome too. Because what we want to be are Christian disciples. And I want to be a church like the one in Acts 8. Would you pray with me? Great and mighty God, thank you. Thank you for giving us everything we need to be the church you've created us to be. And thank you, dear God, that you've given us this incredible snapshot of a spirit-filled church in Acts 2. And thank you for these characteristics that we're exploring. Dear God, I pray for those who are consumed with worry and anxiety. I pray, dear God, that you would give them eyes to see that that's not where you would have us be. And I pray that we would fill our, li our lives with your light and with your holy presence. Flood our souls as we engage in this final worship song. And drive the fear and the worry and the anxiety away. Thank you, dear God. As we put on a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. In Jesus' strong name, amen. Would you stand as we worship together?